Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan, live from Stonebridge Bible Church in Franklin, Tennessee. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter number three. The book of Acts and chapter number three. When I was here a few weeks ago, I was in chapter number one of Acts. And the truth is that I am teaching through the book of Acts on my weekly podcast. And so uh, what we'll probably do is pull the audio from this and, and use it when we get to this point in Acts. But you can go to my website, robertjmorgan.com, and sign up free for my weekly Bible teaching podcasts. And uh, it's in the book of Acts. And I'm just falling in love with this book. And it's, um, uh, this is a passage that is particularly special to me because it's the first story or the first passage of Scripture, to the best of my recollection, that I ever read publicly. It was in something like the fourth grade, and up in the mountains of East Tennessee where I grew up, we had devotions in the classroom, and at some point they became student-led. So it was my day, and they told me, now tomorrow is your day to read scripture for the class. This was in a public school. We had scripture reading and prayer every morning, and the, I think the Pledge of Allegiance. At any rate, um, my pastor had been speaking from this passage, and I had just fallen in love with it. And so I decided I would read this paragraph in Acts chapter 3. So to the best of my knowledge, this is the first scripture that I read publicly ever in my life. And now, here, nearly six decades later, I'm coming back to it. So let's read this paragraph together, beginning with the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, and I'll read the first 10 verses. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. When he went with them into the temple courts, he was walking and jumping and praising God. 
when all of the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and at amazement at what had happened to him. Now, the book of Acts is a story of conversions, of people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, many different individuals. But this is the first of the individuals. We know that earlier, 3,000 people had been saved on the day of Pentecost, and Peter had preached a sermon, and people were continuing to come to Christ. But this is the first of many individuals that came to Christ. So why did Luke choose this first? It doesn't actually say that he was spiritually restored, that he came to Christ, but the implication is very strong here that he did. And I think that Luke chose to put this one first because it is so suggestive in so many ways. And I'll just, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go through this text and give you uh, nine different ways here in which we can learn some lessons from this text. Notice, first of all, the time when it happened. It says in verse 1, one day Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, I don't want to make a great deal about this, but three in the afternoon is very suggestive. Only weeks before it had been at three in the afternoon that the Lord Jesus had breathed his last breath and died. He had been crucified at nine o'clock in the morning, had suffered for six hours, and died at three o'clock. It's also true that in Jewish tradition, the worship day on the temple began and ended at nine o'clock in the morning and at three o'clock in the afternoon. So at nine in the morning, the priest would offer a lamb and the man would blow the shofar trumpet and they would announce the day of worship is beginning and the gates would be open and people would come into the temple. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, the afternoon sacrifice would be offered and another lamb would be sacrificed and the trumpet would blow. And shortly after that, the crowds would begin to leave the temple and the day of worship would be over. So this coincided with the slaying of the lamb, which was still going on. And to me, it's just very suggestive that here we have the first conversion that is recorded for us individually in the book of Acts occurring at the very moment the lamb is being slain at a time that corresponds to the hour when our Lord Jesus Christ died. So to me, the time is suggestive. Secondly, the man is suggestive. Here was a man who had been lame from birth. We know that later on in the text, we're told that he was over 40 years of age. So for 40 years, this man had never taken a step. Now, there are a lot of complications that happen when you can't function in that way. My wife had multiple sclerosis, and she passed away last year. And for about 10 or 11 years before her death, she couldn't transfer from her wheelchair to the bed or to the bathroom or to the chair to the car or anywhere else. And we'd have to lift her and take her back and forth. And that created other complications physically as time went by. Muscles, atrophy, you can't get the exercise you need, your blood pressure goes up, 
you don't have the activity to keep your lungs as healthy as you need to, and then one thing after another begins to occur, and it's a very difficult thing to deal with. And I don't know how in the world this man dealt in that environment with all of the uh, inability and disability that he had. I mean, there are bathroom issues, there are physical complications, there are infections that can set in. So here's a man who just couldn't walk, and as a result of that, he undoubtedly was facing other physical complications. I think that that's suggestive, because we are living in a world right now in which people do not know how to walk by faith. They don't find a narrow gate. They don't walk down what Isaiah called the highway of holiness. They are not walking in the Spirit. They are not walking in the Word. And as a result of that, they're having complications psychologically and politically and mentally and philosophically and emotionally and maritally in every area of life. Being lame has complications. So here you have something happening at the very moment when Jesus died, corresponding to the hour of his death, with a man who couldn't walk and was suffering undoubtedly complications from that. And notice thirdly the place. It occurred at the beautiful gate. Now, we honestly don't know exactly what this gate was because the Romans so thoroughly destroyed the temple that it's hard to reconstruct it. But we do know that the temple sitting on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, I've been there many times, it represented and in fact was for Jewish people the very presence of God. And around this temple, there were various courtyards. So you had the courtyard of the Gentiles. You'd go through a gate, and anybody could go through that gate and get a little bit close to God in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Then you would have a gate leading to the court of the women, and that was as far as the women could go. Then you'd have the court of the men, and that was as far as the men could go. Then you'd have the court of the priests, and they could go Further, and the ones appointed could go into the holy place to tend to the menorah, the lamp, and to the table of showbread and the incense offering. And then only the high priest could go into the innermost sanctum of the temple once a year into the Holy of Holies. So this man was sitting evidently at one of these gates, probably the one with the greatest mobility and traffic near it so that he could ask for alms. And he was laying there at a beautiful gate leading into the presence of God, but he had not gone through that gate. Now, to me, this is very suggestive. When I read this, I thought instantly of the story in the book of Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob was running away from home. And there in the desert by himself, he lay down for the night used a pillow for his rock, uh, a rock for his pillow because uh, I'm sure he wrapped something around it and he fell asleep and he had a very vivid dream. And in his dream, he saw a stairway leading up to heaven and the angels of God were coming and going. In other words, he saw the portal between earth and heaven and the angels were coming back and forth. And when he woke up, he said, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. This is the gate of heaven.
And later, in the book of John chapter 1, Jesus said at the very end of that chapter, I am that gate. He said, in effect, what Jacob was dreaming was a symbol of who I am. Jesus said to Nathanael, you will see the Son of Man with the angels of God ascending and descending on him, referring back to Jacob's picture. So what is the gate to heaven? What is the doorway that allows us to have eternal life? The beautiful gate is Jesus himself. And here is a man who is unable to walk by faith. He's having complications at the very hour when Jesus died. And he's so close to the beautiful gate going into the presence of God, but he cannot get himself there on his own efforts. There is no way, as hard as he wanted to, that he could get into the presence of God through that gate on his own efforts. This is so illustrative of where our culture is is right now. People, they can't walk by faith. Christ has already paid the price and died for them at the hour of 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but they are unable to walk by faith. They are having complications. They cannot in any way, in their own strength, walk through that beautiful gate. But then, fifthly, or fourthly, notice the intersectionality. Now, I know our culture is using that word in a particular way, but I want to use it in my own way here. Notice how Peter and John, in the will of God, intersected with this man's pathway. It says in verse number uh, two, that, um, or number three, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. The old translation says he asked for alms. And someone said he asked for alms and he got legs. Well, he asked them for alms. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look on us. And notice this. The man gave him their his attention, expecting to get something from them. He was responsive to him. Now, I think this is very important. When we go through life, maybe even today, maybe even someone you meet today, God is leading you. You'll intersect. Your pathway will intersect theirs. In some way, you'll have the opportunity of through your smile or your demeanor or your patience or your words to be a testimony. And someone may respond to that. Now, if there's no response, there isn't a great deal you can do. But if there is even a little bit of response then we should think maybe the Lord is working here. A little bit of response can lead to some more response. And so Peter said, look at us. And the man gave them his attention. And he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. And this man was listening. I just have to believe that there are moments in our lives, if we pray for them and if we're alert to them, when the Lord causes our paths to intersect with someone who is lame and having complications and not able to get through the gate himself, and he needs our help. A couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, 
my flight was canceled and I got on another flight and I sat beside a young man just out of boot camp. He was in a sailor uniform and he was exhausted. He was going to his first posting and I was worried about something that particular day and wasn't really in a very good frame of mind. And he fell asleep right beside me and I was looking out the window worrying about my problem and the Lord kept saying, you should witness to him. You should witness to him. And I would say, Lord, I don't feel like witnessing to him. I'm worried about this thing. And the Lord, you know, kept saying, you should witness to him. And I said, well, look, he's asleep. Well, in a few minutes, he woke up. And the feeling that I had was so strong. But I just, you know, I didn't, I wasn't very creative. I couldn't, I didn't get into a conversation with him. I just looked at him. And I said, I'm a Baptist preacher. Do you have any questions about God? (laughs) I mean, honestly, that's what I said. (laughs) He said, actually, sir, I do. (laughs) And for the rest of the flight, I was able to share with him the gospel and answer questions that he had. And he wanted to pray and to receive Christ as Savior before we landed in Dallas. So you never know how the Lord may cause your pathway to intersect with somebody else's. And so here Peter and John were going into the temple, and they happened to look down and to see this man. Now, I I think one of the reasons he was responsive is I don't think this is the first time he had known or heard about the gospel. I mean, he had been there every day for 40 years, 33 years before Jesus had been carried in as a little baby. When Jesus was 12 years old, he'd come to that temple. But especially for the last three years, Jesus had come regularly, and the last week of his life, Jesus was at that temple all the time, teaching and preaching and debating with the scribes and with the Pharisees, And I'm sure that the Lord caused this man to hear and to see, to take it all in, preparing his soul for this very moment. We very seldom lead someone to Christ in an instant when they have no preparation. But you don't know who has gone before you and borne a witness or prayed for that person. And it could be that you're sowing seed for somebody else to reap, or it could be that your life intersects with theirs at just the moment when the Holy Spirit has prepared them to be saved. So look at the miracle in verse number six. Peter said, this is the, uh, the time, the man, the place, the intersection, and now fifthly, the miracle. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In other words, our effectiveness doesn't depend on our being able to finance all of the ministries we want to. Now, ministries need to be well-financed, and we need to be generous, but our effectiveness doesn't depend on that. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong, and he jumped to his feet and began to walk. I like to think that there were several hands involved with this. Peter reached down with his hand. The man reached up probably with both of his, and the Lord reached down with his healing hand and touched this man's ankles and legs, 
instantly, all of the atrophy and all of the disability disappeared, and this was a tremendous miracle. Now, miracles in the Bible don't often occur. They occur mainly in the days of Moses and in the days of Elijah and Elisha, and then in the days of Jesus and in the very early days of the apostles. But here we have this wonderful miracle of a man who began to walk. And the sixth thing that I want you to notice, which is my favorite, is the euphoria of the moment. It says he jumped to his feet and he began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. I saw a video once on this. I can't find it anymore, but it was so beautiful to watch. This man was so happy. His caregivers were laughing, and they were just dancing in the exuberance of that moment. And it's not only the man who was exuberant. It goes on to say in verse 9, when all of the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him, walking and leaping and praising God in wonder and amazement. And I think as I read this, I thought to myself, what we are lacking in most of our lives is some euphoria. We need some euphoria, some enthusiasm, and I think we need to cultivate it. Now, emotionally, we can't live in a constant state of euphoria, but we shouldn't be living in a constant state of discouragement either, should we? The joy of the Lord should be bubbling up inside of us, and when was the last time that, that you saw some euphoria? You know, when a team wins a championship, they're at the very end, and they're, they're just lost, running and jumping and so happy. Or you take your children to a, you know, to a theme park or something. There, there are moments when there is just this surge of, of positive emotion, but we don't have it as much as we should in our individual lives. And the older we get, sometimes the less we have. And I've just decided I'm going to cultivate some euphoria. And the other day I went out to the patio and I looked up and I just noticed how blue the sky was and how beautiful it was and the trees over here are so colorful. And I said, I've got people up there. Beyond the blue sky is heaven and the throne is up there and my wife is up there and my parents are up there and I've got eternal life. And I just began thinking about all of that and a song of praise came to my mind and it was a little bit of euphoria. I think we need that. We have lost that. The wonder, the amazement, the excitement of worship. And we get that sometimes when we study the Bible. We get that sometimes when we're out and we're looking at nature. We meditate on the greatness of God. But we need to cultivate euphoria in our lives. And this man was just filled with joy. Now, seventhly, notice, notice the opportunity that this afforded to Peter. It says in verse 11... While the man held on to Peter and John, all of the people were astonished and came running to them to a place called Solomon's Colonnade. This was a big covered portico over on the southern side of the temple complex, which was large enough the Christians would gather there. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, so he began preaching, a sermon sparked by the healing of this lame man. 
Someone said it was a lame excuse for a sermon. And it says in verse 12, he said, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life. What a phrase that is. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you now can see. Now he's going to get into the point of the gospel. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. Jesus himself had said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. So he takes them back to the Old Testament. And um, so now look at verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that three things will happen. Now notice this. Repent and turn to God so that, first of all, your sins may be wiped out. It's the power of the blood of Christ that wipes out our sins, takes away everything in your past that you're ashamed of or feel guilty about. You know, blood is very red, and it stains. But the blood of Jesus, though very red, bleaches. That's what's so spectacular about the blood of Jesus. It bleaches us as white as snow. So our sins are wiped out. And secondly, times of refreshing come from the Lord. I think this is getting back to the idea of euphoria. When you receive Christ as Savior, then your sins are bleached away by the blood of Christ, and you begin living with refreshment. You become refreshed and you become refreshing. There should be something very refreshing about our lives. We live in seasons of refreshment where the Lord continually restores us. I've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress again, and I hadn't read it for a long time. But Pilgrim, Christian, the Pilgrim in the story is taken into a room, and there is a fire in the fireplace, and the devil there is throwing water on the fire, but the fire isn't quenched. And Pilgrim says, why is the fire not quenched with all of that water going on it? And his guide takes him out the door and around to the back and shows him the back of the fireplace where the Lord Jesus is pumping a continual supply of oil to the fire. We have an unseen source of continual refreshment. We have secret resources by the Holy Spirit so that we can live in times of refreshing. 
and especially as we have our time every day of reading the Bible and spending time in prayer, we are refreshed. And the third thing, it says, repent then and turn to God so your sins be wiped out, that times of refreshing will come from the Lord. And thirdly, in verse 20, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. So he says, when you receive Christ, in the past, your sins are all blotted out. In the present, you have the capability of living a refreshing life. And in the future, you look forward to the Lord Jesus coming again. The three great results of having him to be your savior. Suddenly, this lame man possessed them all. But now very quickly, eighthly, notice the resistance in chapter 4. The priest and the temple of the captain of the temple guard and of the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, doesn't it seem incongruous that anybody would be disturbed, greatly disturbed, by the hope and the teaching of resurrection and of life. It seems so strange to me that we go out with a message of hope and peace and encouragement and love and everlasting life, the one answer to despair that the world has, and people despise us because of it. They resent us. They oppose us. But that's the way it's been from the very beginning. So anytime you begin to say, Lord, make me someone whose life intersects with others, and you share the gospel, and you have the opportunities that that gives to share it with others, and the message increases, you're always going to get pushback from somebody. Just expect it. Tremendous pushback. But finally, notice the results in chapter 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men, and this is probably speaking specifically of men, who believed grew to be about 5,000. So we would say, if you include the women and children, now suddenly the church is growing into five digits here, probably 10,000, 15,000. There is a tremendous growth taking place. So this is the way Luke begins to introduce personal evangelism and winning people one at a time to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us a very suggestive time, three o'clock in the afternoon. He gave us a very illustrative man who was unable to walk and facing complications in life. He gave us a specific place. This man was just outside a beautiful gate leading into the presence of God, which is, reminds us of Jesus. And then there is this intersection that takes place when the Lord leads Peter and John right in front of this man, right at the right time. And then there is the miracle of healing, including his inner healing. That leads to euphoria. That creates more opportunities for the spreading of the gospel. That brings resistance but the result is that multitudes of people begin to hear and receive. Now, as I study all of this, it leaves me with a prayer. 
and I just want to suggest it for you. Lord, help me to be like Peter and John, so sensitive to the fact that someone may be in my pathway who needs you, and I look at them, and I throw out a hook, I suggest something, I say a word, I look for receptivity, and maybe there is a time and a place for me to share the gospel or to lead that person to Jesus Christ. This is what happened here in the book of Acts as a study for us to teach us as we go through life to be intersectors and to say, Lord, may my path cross the path of someone this week, maybe on that flight, maybe out here on this ball field, maybe playing golf, maybe at work, maybe at school. But help me to be refreshing, refreshed, and ready to share the gospel. And if we here in this room and watching online will take this to heart, there will be new people coming into the kingdom because the Lord knows how to use us. And the apostles were called ordinary, uneducated men. Later in this chapter, how could such unordinary, uneducated people do something like this, the Sanhedrin wanted to know. We may be ordinary people, but the Lord wants to use you at the beautiful gate at three o'clock in the afternoon in someone's life in an extraordinary way. Mm -hmm. 